to it, as we look at it, as we let it absorb into our hearts and our minds, we pray that your Holy Spirit would do a work that we could never do with this living and active word, that it would impact our lives and change us and, and uh, convict us, encourage us, all the things that uh, whatever is necessary in our hearts, God, we open up to you to allow you to do that through your word in Christ's name. Amen. Well, if you weren't here last week, last week we began a new series. I see some of you tan people that weren't here last week that were. Um, <laughs> that um, we started a new series in the Ten Commandments, a 10-week series in the Ten Commandments. And I don't usually do this, but I would encourage you, if you were not here, and especially if you plan on coming back, uh, to go back and watch or listen last week's sermon, because I was so good. No, I'm kidding. Because, no, no, that's not why. Because it really will give you a good idea of kind of where we're going, kind of set out a roadmap a little bit for the Ten Commandments. Why? Because really we're talking about uh, the purpose and the importance of the Ten Commandments. And one of the things uh, that we saw last week was that the Ten Commandments weren't just for the people in the Old Testament. Really what they are, they're actually central to the New Testament teaching about what it means to be a person who is truly living in obedience to God. These are very, very important. And last week's was pivotal. This beginning is the top one that he starts off with. We saw that the Ten Commandments, though, are a reminder to us that where, where we fall short in certain areas in our lives and where we stumble, yet remember we talked about that the Ten Commandments aren't meant to show us where we fall short so that we could wallow in our guilt or so that we can wallow in our shame because we're not you know, able to keep up with this or able to live up to these rules, these 10 rules that are there. But what they're meant to do is to show us a way to actually live in freedom. And you'll see that the Ten Commandments, set free to live free. So often the world sees the Ten Commandments and God's law as just a bunch of rules that have to follow, kill joy. No, Ten Commandments were given to set us free absolutely free. And what we saw last week is the Ten Commandments, really God gave us to set us free from depending on things and relying on things for our security and significance that don't last. Anything other than God that we would put our, okay, this is what I need to trust in. This is what I'm going to rely on. It sets us free from having to be bound to that. And they continually point us back to our desperate need for Jesus, the only one that can truly set us free. So that's what they do. And I mentioned, one thing I mentioned, I heard it mentioned again uh, this morning in the adult classes too. I mentioned, remember I said that Ten Commandments are kind of like, they're kind of like the guardrails along the road that give us this freedom to enjoy the ride that God has us on in this life. Because when the, you know, when the guardrails aren't there and you're in a sheer cliff, you're kind of going, uh, 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 when you're driving. But when that guardrail's there, you're just, you're free to cruise. The wor I'm not going to worry about falling over. I'm not going to worry about doing the wrong thing. It's, I got the guardrails there. That's what the Ten Commandments are like. Well, we saw that the first commandment tells us that we are to have no other gods but God. He's to be the exclusive object of our worship, of our love, and of our trust. The found, that really, you can see that really look at the first commandment as really foundational for all the rest because when we're, here's the deal, when we're completely enamored 
with the one true God, when, when he's the one that we want more than anything, the one we trust and love more than anything, every single area of our lives is affected. Every single area. There, there will be no separation at all of any smallest part of our lives when we are completely enamored with God because what happens is all the other objects of, our, of worship, all the other things that we would possibly put our trust in, they get exposed as unable to save us. They get exposed as being false. So often I see believers, even myself, we get caught into worrying about things because they, what, what if, what if, what if? What if that happens? The first commandment is helping us to understand that, listen, if I'm completely all out enamored with Jesus, completely all out enamored with God, then all these other things, I'm going to know, well, that's, that's false thinking. Or as in the, we've said this before, in the recovery world, that's stinking thinking. That's what the commandments do for us, okay? Especially the first commandment. So the focus of the first commandment concerned worshiping God alone, okay? Worshiping God alone. The second commandment, which we're going to look at today, is closely related. Very, very close. And I got I to admit to you, I struggled midway through just really understanding the second commandment. And there's various ideas of what it really means, but this one's closely related is that this concern, this, this commandment now is concerned with how we worship God alone. First one says we're supposed to worship God alone. This one says how. Now, I've got a, way too many fill in the blanks on your little sheets there if you want to use. But first one is, in other words, I said the first commandment is a warning against worshiping false gods, whereas the second commandment is a warning against worshiping God alone falsely. Okay? And we're going to unpack what that really means. And I think this is important because a friend of mine, Mark Mitchell, he's a pastor friend of mine, he writes this in his book. He says, God cares as much about our worship of him being pure as he does about it being exclusive. We're going to come back to that thought over and over again. He wants us to be pure. He's concerned about it being as pure as he is exclusive. Because see, just as it is super tempting to worship or to love or to trust in something or someone else other than God to meet our needs for security and significance and purpose, it's just as tempting to worship, love, and trust God, believe it or not, in a way that is inappropriate and that result in devastating consequences. And this is what this second command helps us with. So let's look at the second command. We're going to look at it in its entirety. Uh, as you'll notice, if you've ever read through the list of the commandments, some of them aren't just little one-liners. Some of them have little extra to it, and that's this one. So let's look at Exodus chapter 20 is where we find them, uh, where they found, one place they're found. Um, 20 verses 4 through 6 says this. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord, your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep 
my commandments. Now, at first glance, it might seem like this commandment is a prohibition against worshiping other gods than God. That's what, that's, that's what it looks like. Yet number two on your notes, yet number two is God, what he's doing here, what God is prohibiting here is creating or allowing any object whether a statue, picture, jewelry, whatever, even a mental image to represent him or to be used in an aid in worshiping him. Now, we're going to continue to unpack that because that's still a little, I know it's a little confusing. Now, this commandment isn't saying that, he, that God is against religious art or you can't have a cross hanging off your neck or from your earrings, things like that. It's not, it's not saying that. Um, and even he's not even saying you can't. Um, you, he's against other stuff that's even depicted in strict scripture, like all these different images. For instance, we know that God. Remember in the Old Testament, God instructed that the, He gave a spirit. He said His spirit came out to and helped those, these craftsmen and helped them to be very, very good at building all these unique symbols and things that they would put into the tabernacle. And even Solomon, when he built the great tabernacle, remember, <clears throat> God says that have craft craftsmen, build all these unique things that are going to be in there. There's going to be cherubim, and there was going to be these pomegranates and all these different things that were symbols. So God is not saying he's against symbols at all. Number three is what this commandment forbids is creating images or representations of God that would cause us to worship him in an unworthy manner, or I even like to say it like this, or in a way we prefer that is not worthy of who he is. Literally, you can even call that, you can, you can just go and call that idolatry. Worship, even worshiping God in a way that's unworthy of who he is, that's idolatry. And that's exactly what this is getting to here. Probably the most, the most notable example that we can think about in the Old Testament, what was that? Yeah, yeah, exactly. The golden calf is a great example of this in the Old Testament. I mean, the, remember the people were getting impatient with Moses up on, that he was up on Mount Sinai. And so the people told Aaron to make them a God that they could see and touch. Okay. So Aaron melts down all the jewelry and he makes this golden calf. And he says, okay, everybody, this is the God who brought you out of Egypt. Now, here's the important thing about this. It's not that these people had abandoned God. That's not what is happening here. They were still worshiping God. But the difference was that they had replaced the real God for a God that they could touch, for a God that they could see, for God, oh, that makes sense. I can, I can, I can wrap my head around that. That is idolatry. That's what he's talking about here. They hadn't abandoned him at all. So, but why? Why is this so important? I mean, this is, this is number two on the top 10, okay? This is number two. Why is this so important? And if you go back and listen, and, or if you remember last week's sermon, how important it was that God said that you have no other gods before me, you'll understand why he's now saying it's so important that you worship me in the right way. Okay, what's because in our minds we might be thinking, what's so wrong with having some representation of God in order to make uh, worship of Him more, more personable or, or more relatable? 
Well, I believe there's three reasons we're going to look at. Three reasons we're going to look at, at why it is so dangerous to do that. The first is this, and it's number four in your notes. Worshiping an image or representation of God both dishonors and distorts the reality of who he truly is. We know this. God is all-powerful. God is all-knowing. He's not limited to time and to space. He's always been and he will always be. He's incredible. No atom is too small or no galaxy is so vast that he doesn't encompass all those things. So really, any symbol or any man-made likeness or preconceived idea of him can't possibly come close to depicting his limitless glory and power. It just can't. This analogy doesn't come close at all, I know, but this is all I could think of. It's, it's, like, it's, like, seeing, it's like seeing all police officers as glor- nothing more than glorified security guards. How does that make you feel, Gary? <laughs> nice. <laughs> or it's like seeing, here's another one, it's like seeing stay-at-home mothers as nothing more than glorified babysitters. That's, that's kind of what, that's kind of the slam that this is here. An image or a picture of what we might have of God will always fall, for, fall, fall far short of his true glory and his majesty. And no, uh, no, and, and to use anything in, or in anything to help us to somehow get a better idea of who he is in order to worship him is not only extremely dishonoring to him, but it's extremely dangerous. It's really dangerous for us because it distorts our view on who he truly is. Now, I'm not saying here, he's not saying that you can't think about, because the Bible talks about God in all sorts of different ways. So it's not saying that we don't see God or we see Jesus as the shepherd or God is this, as, as, as a father. He talks about a father. But we got to be careful that we, take our, that we don't take our human limited understanding and attach that to God. Because this distorted view can play out really in a number of negative ways. It really can. And, and uh, it can happen. Some inappropriate, inappropriate things can happen in our worship of God. Number five, one way is that when we have a distorted view of God, we can become susceptible to imagining that we can some, he can somehow be manipulated. Okay? The truth is, and I think we would all get this, the truth is that we all would like to kind of have a user-friendly God, Right? kind of a user-friendly God that really makes sense to us, okay? That he'll act and he'll respond in a way that makes sense. And that really he'll ultimately do the things that fulfill my desires. Isn't that where our flesh goes? Our flesh is always going to want to be have a user-friendly God that makes sense to us. Example, I mean, if God really is an old man with a gray beard and a big old flowing toga, if that's really who God, if that's our mental picture of who God is, he's always going to be this kind and benevolent guy, isn't he? If that's how we see him, that's, how, that's the picture we have of him, the mental picture we have is going to be. Or just the way we think about God. If I, if I pray this way or have this kind of faith or, or follow these set of rules, things are going to go my way. You ever felt that way before? Oh, didn't have my quiet time today. Oh, day's not going to go well. 
or I didn't do this, or I didn't do that, or I did do that. I know I'm not supposed to. Now I'm, no, everything's messed up now. See what we do? See how we manipulate God? How easy it is to put him into our image, an image or an image that just makes sense to us. And this is what God is trying to warn against. This is what he doesn't want us to get trapped into. Another way that we distort the view of God can be uh, have a negative impact is number six on your notes. It says it makes it easy for us to focus on certain attributes of God while ignoring others. You know, we may focus on his love, his kindness, his compassion, his mercy, and his grace, all wonderful things that he is, right? But we can do that while ignoring his holiness and his justice. Because that, that doesn't fit necessarily with me. I can't live up to that. So that, I'll, I'll embrace this, this, this cuddly teddy bear of a God. But that, this kind of God, I can't do that. See, we're changing the image of God here. Or sometimes we look at God as being so big and so holy and so magnificent out there that we ignore the fact that he desires intimacy with us. Like a perfect father, a perfect, loving, and attentive father. You know people like this? Have you ever been in that? I've seen people like, we see God is just so big and so out there that we forget that he's also intimate, very intimate with us. So we can change that and that can hurt us. Another way this plays out, number seven on your notes, he can be, we can separate knowing God with real life impact. This is to me, this is the American Christian mindset. And so many, the false American Christian mindset. We think that we can be a part of church. I prayed a prayer. I grew up in a Christian home. I'm involved in different things. Um, I, I sing at church. I worship God. I even pray at home occasionally. Yet nothing, yet our, nothing happens in our lives that has great impact there's not this continual impact having. We do all these things, yet our lives aren't profoundly impacted by them. We should all, we should, and it's hard to do this, we should walk away from our time together like this, changed. To some degree, somehow. We might not know how, we might not feel it, but that's the importance of coming to church. The importance of coming to church is not so the pastor can go, God, they came, good, they're good. Or you can feel good about yourself because you came to church and you didn't ditch and you haven't been in a while. That's not why. Part of the reason, one of the big reasons we come together because I believe God does something unique when we come together like this. So when we sing songs, it's not just for the benefit of you listening and us just hearing. It's for the benefit of us for connecting and worshiping God and letting that change who we are, letting that, it, that draw us closer to God, letting those words and the truth of what we're singing, not just sing it, but picture yourself as you're singing it, singing this to Almighty God. That's what this time is about. And if that doesn't do something to you, if that does it, I'm not saying you walk out of here going, oh, I'm full of the, you know. No, I'm not saying that at all. Life is still hard. Life is, a, but to not be, have your tank rejuvenated or reminded of how good God is and taking that into our real life, taking that into all the stuff that we have to deal with as soon as we walk out these doors. 
That's what should happen. And if it doesn't happen, there's a chance, I'm not saying it is, but there's a chance there's some idolatry happening in our life. There's a chance that we're, and I don't mean that as an accuser, I'm just saying there's a chance that we are not worshiping God in an appropriate manner. We're worshiping God in a way that fits what makes sense to us. And when we do that, we just suck the power out of God. We take away the power that he can do in our lives, or we, we're ignoring it. Is this making sense? Because I know for me, it's easy to get into a routine, even with my time in the Word each, day, each morning when I'm reading through the Bible and different things like that, going, okay, I need to do this, I want to do this, but forgetting, oh my gosh, this is an opportunity for me to be changed, for an impact to be in my life. I don't even know, have to know what it is, but I'm open to it, God. This is what the second commandment is to help us to try to, so that we can freely experience all this wonderful stuff. Because when we don't, when our life is not being changed by our time in the word and by our time in fellowship and by our time of worship, that, that really probably is a result of a distorted view of who God is due to worshiping him falsely. See how practical the Ten Commandments are? And we're only on number two. <laughs> okay, another way how this plays it, uh, um, self, oh no, I, I think I'm done. I think I'm done with all the other ways. Number eight here. The truth is how we view and then in turn worship God affects the way we live our lives. That's all I just, all that rant I went on that wasn't in my notes, that's what all that was about. How we view God which in turn determines how we are going to worship him, is going to have a profound impact on every area of our lives. No doubt about it. Obeying the second commandment sets us free. It sets us free from improper views of God so that we can be free to worship him as he wants us to worship him. And how is that? Denise even mentioned it in her prayer. God wants us to worship him in spirit and in truth. Spirit and in truth. So what does that mean? God said we're to, we're to be worshipers in spirit and in truth. Number nine on your notes, to worship God in spirit and truth means to worship him with a passion that is informed by the truth of scripture. I know that's kind of simplifying it, but I, out of, I boiled that down because that's what I believe. To worship God in spirit, in truth, means to worship him with passion. Now, you might be thinking, God, Rob, I'm not an emotional person. That doesn't mean you don't have passion. We all have passion. We're all passionate about things. Some of us just happen to be weirder about it than others and showing it. That's all. But worshiping in passion, but not leaving out the truth of Scripture. And this is where things go sideways sometimes. And, and you know, you can, go, you, can, you can go too much on one side or what's on the other. No, this is what the Bible says. I'm, you know, we can't do it and get the straight line. And we have God in a box and our worship is like this. Or we worship with just emotion. And it's just, just pure just emotion. And then that emotion fades once that experience is over. So that's why he's saying worship in spirit and truth. I love what John Piper had to say about this. I love it. Look, look, read along with me what it says here. He says, worship must be vital and real in the heart. 
The worship must rest on a true perception of God. There must be spirit and there must be truth. Truth without emotion produces dead rituals and a church full or half full of artificial admirers. On the other hand, emotion without truth produces empty frenzy and cultivates shallow people who refuse the discipline of righteous thought. But true worship comes from people who are deeply emotional and who love deep and sound doctrine. Strong affections for God rooted in the truth are the bone and marrow of biblical worship. Both are so important. That's how we're supposed to worship God. All right, now the second reason that we're told not to worship images or representations of God is found in verse 5. Let's look at it again. Verse 5 says, you shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord, your God, am a jealous God. All right, number 10. Boy, that's a whole, this is a whole sermon. We could go on this, on this uh, whole, whole topic, believe me. Um, did you ladies study this? You guys, so you ladies can tune out. What a jealous guy. So you study the, attribu- and the attributes of God. This is a very important attribute of God. I love what the speaker, I, I watched a little bit of, the, of what you guys watched. The speaker said that um, when God chose a name for himself, <laughs> one of the names he chose for himself was jealous. There's no mistake. This is, what he, this is what he said. So number 10 on your note says, when we rely on an image or representation of God to make our worship of him more user-friendly, it arouses his jealousy. Okay? Yet, this is important. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this, but it's, unlike, it's not like the jealousy that we typically think of. I was talking with a, a fellow brother about this just recently. We were talking about the, that God is jealous, and he went, he had that just incredulous look on his eyes, in his eyes that, what, God is jealous? But we need to understand that this isn't a jealousy that's been marred and corrupted by sin and by the worldly ways of thinking of jealousy. It's, when we think of jealousy, we think of it typically rooted in, in selfishness and, and insecurity. Oh, don't take that away from me. What? No, God chooses, God doesn't need us to love him. He doesn't need us. He's always been. God has encompassed love. God has been love since forever. That's who he, that's who he is. So he doesn't need us to love, love him, but he chooses to. This, the, the jealousy that, that God has is rooted in this devoted and committed and passionate love for you and I. That's what it's rooted in. Because see, when we give our affection to anything short of who God truly is, he becomes jealous for us. Okay? He becomes jealous for us. That's how, because it shows how much he treasures us and how much of all of our devotion should belong to him and to him alone. Once again, it's not this worldly kind of jealousy. It's a jealousy that says, I love you so much. You are so mine. You are so treasured by me. Don't even think about not only chasing after other gods, but worshiping me in a way that is not worthy of me because I love you so much and I want you to know me. I mean, really know me. 
That's what he's saying here. That's what he's getting about. Because remember, we talked about, I said this, God cares as much about our worship being pure as he does exclusive. Now, because God cares so much for us and longs to protect us from the pain that occurs when uh, we choose to disobey, he gives us, right, in the next verse, he gives us a consequence of disobeying this second commandment. Look in verse 5, it's the rest of verse 5. He says, I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me. Number 11 in your notes, the consequences for choosing to worship or worship a dishonoring or distorted image of God is passing down a distorted image of God to family members and to future generations. This is how so often the church in America and anywhere else stays in a lukewarm, in a non-effective state by having people, leaders, and different people that have are, are worshiping an image of God and not God for who he truly is, and therefore passing down this very image of God to the next generation. What a horrible legacy to leave. What a horrible legacy to leave for those of us that know God. I mean, I know that for me, I want one of my deepest desires is to leave for my family a legacy of what it means to worship God in spirit and in truth. And like I shared last week about my father, that's exactly what my dad did. Thankfully, I'm thankful to God that I have that example of a man who, that's, that was his passion, was to worship God in spirit and in truth. And he has passed that down. And my grandchildren, when they shared at the service, basically said somewhat the same kind of thing. What a great legacy to leave for everybody. Which leads to the flip side of that. The flip side of that is the consequence, um, the benefit that comes from, uh, from the benefit. The consequence we're going to see is now in verse 6. Look what he says. But showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. So we see that far more than wanting to judge people, it's God's desire to bless. He wants to, he wants to show mercy to people. Lamentations 3.22 says this, the steadfast, we submit, know the song, the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. This is who God is. And when we keep this commandment to not worship any image or perception of God that dishonor, dishonors him, when we seek to do that, to honor him who he truly is, the promise is that there's going to be an impact on generations to come when it comes to loving and obeying and serving God. I know we so much think in the moment. How many of us think about the future generations, our children, our children's children, and them not only, oh, they prayed the prayer, they got saved, they're going to church. No, truly worshiping God in spirit and truth, obeying him, giving their lives completely to him, everything, every nook and cranny of their lives, no matter where they work, no matter, no matter their career, they're like, I'm all in. Is that your desire for your kids? For your kids' kids? Of course it is. And that's the promise. Why it's so important to seek this out. So, so how do we make sure, how to wrap this up here, how do we make sure that we are purely worshiping God and not a false image or representation of him? How do we do that? 
Well, first, number 12 on your notes. One thing I see is we must be adamant about seeking to know the God of the Bible. Now, this might sound trite, but it's not. We must be adamant. I throw that word adamant in there because we can never feel like we assume that we have arrived at this clear picture of understanding of who God is or what he is like. That's danger right there. To lose the sense of awe, the sense of wonder, the sense of, oh my gosh, I, this is, he's amazing, and I don't understand him fully, and I'm okay with that, and all I want to do is get to know him more and more and more. When we do that, that will have an impact. That will have an impact on our worship. When we constantly wake up in the morning, and we, our first thought is, unfathomable, amazing God, what do you have for me today? Because I know you got something for me today in my office, my cubicle, my wherever, my I don't know, but you're, you're so amazing, I just want to submit to you. That's when we learn to worship God. Secondly, ironically, God has provided, interesting enough, he has provided for us the only true image and likeness of himself that we're to worship. It's the person of Jesus. The person of Jesus. Listen to what the Apostle Paul said about Jesus. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. Jesus himself, look what he said about himself. Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. Not, no, he wears the same sandals as I do. No. If you've seen what I am like, how I carry myself, how I treat other people, have you seen that? Then you have seen my Father. And you have seen God. To obey the second commandment, to worship God in a pure and worthy manner, ultimately means that we worship and know the person of Jesus as he's revealed in Scripture. Not what we've been taught, not what we've been thinking. I was going to show you. I used to have a picture above my bed in college. I had the one of Jesus above my bed, but I had the one, kind of the Brad Pitt one, you know, the, the flowing hair, looking at me with the blue eyes, mostly kind of a white guy, you know. And I had this image of, and, and it, not that I was worshiping in that way, but I wanted to have something that helped remind me. But now I look back at that and I go, man, that, that gave me some sense of a false idea of who Jesus was. Not that it was wrong to have a picture of Jesus in my room. That's not the idea. But it tended to lead me toward, oh, that's the kind of Jesus I really want today. I need, oh, she broke up with me. I, that's the one I need today. The one that the tender, the, you know, the feathered, you know, all that kind of thing. And that, and that just limits who Jesus is. So it's worshiping the Jesus of the Bible. That's why it's so important to be in the Word on a regular basis, daily basis if you can, to be in God's Word so that we know. That I am learning. I've been a Christian most of my life. I've been in ministry most of my life. I am amazed at what I'm constantly learning on a regular basis as I read my Bible. Blown away. Even in the book of Ezra yesterday, I was like, wow, I, I, I never thought about that. And how, what does that mean for me? So we look at the, who's the Jesus of the Bible. So, and some of us in this room that have grown up in church have to kind of push aside some of those images and some of those thoughts of who we kind of made because we've kind of probably shaped God into a kind of an image. And we need to kind of throw that out. We need to kind of deconstruct that. 
Did you know that people, Christians, are leaving the churches, church in mass amounts, especially young people? The millennials are bailing on the church like you would not believe. 1,500 pastors resign every month. And I believe a lot of that has to do with the fact that so often we are ourselves and we're teaching people and allowing people to feel okay with worshiping a God that we construct in an image that makes sense to us and it's not who he truly is. And it dishonors him and it hurts us as well. Because I believe that if we do seek to know Jesus, that Jesus is revealed in Scripture, chances are that we will find ourselves worshiping in spirit and in truth. All right, a couple questions for you. Let me ask you this. What are some examples of false images, perceptions, or preconceived ideas of God that people might have that can influence how they worship? You might have been thinking some as I was, ta- as I was talking. What are some that you can think of? Can you think of examples of these kind of false images? And by the way, they don't have to be like radically false. The ones that impact us the most are the ones that are just a little bit false, because that's how the enemy works, right? Yes, Buck. What's that? Okay, like maybe use, I, I need something in order to, yeah, okay, good, good. What else? What are some other things that um, perceptions of God, preconceived ideas? Yes. That's a big one, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. Because so often I want love, I need love, but we also need justice, his justice too. Yeah, good, Joe. What else? What are some others that just kind of come to your mind? Santa Claus. Santa Claus? Yeah, yeah, in a sense, God's like Santa Claus. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Any others you can think about? Right, exactly. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And it's hard to do that because we're human and we want to personalize God. We want to make him, you know, like I said, self, you know, that we can understand him a bit. But he doesn't want us to do that. He doesn't want us to do that at all. Because the reality is, I forgot to say this, is um, Jesus is the perfect image of God. He's the one who came to allow us to really see the face of God who we can't see. Jesus is the face of God. God, we can't see God. There's no, there's never been any, we don't even know what Jesus looked like. But when we look at Jesus, we understand God more. So anything that gets away from that, anything is, is, is not good for us. Okay, second one. How does it make you feel, and you might not have any answers, but I just thought, how does it make you feel to hear that God is a jealous God? Maybe some of you ladies that study this in a deeper way in the women's Bible study. Yeah. 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 So good. Yeah. I think it's like uh, you're, you're down at the grocery store and somebody tries to snatch your kid. Yeah. You're kind of jealous. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> jealous because you want to snatch another kid? No. <laughs> no, no, yeah. 
Yeah, exactly. 100%. I felt that way about a baby chick with a hawk. <laughs> yeah. That's not yours. <laughs> That's right. Dude. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. He actually does own us. Yeah, exactly. He does own us. Whether someone takes us away or we voluntarily go, yes. He's got, like, it, like if a chick would say, no, I'm out of here. Well, wait a second. No, no, no. Yeah. Anything else about jealousy that I know because I know it's a weird kind of thing that just strikes you? All right, last one. Oh, go ahead. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. And that really does show the love, huh? There's con- there are consequences, because this is how much I love you. Yeah, last one real quick. What are some practical ways a person can make sure they're learning to worship God in spirit and truth? I know it's hard to think of these like right off the bat. That's going to be great to come. It'd be fun to visit them later. But what do you think? What are some practical ways a person can make sure they're learning to worship God in spirit and in truth? I look back where I said what the spirit, what worshiping in spirit and truth is. Remember, it's worshiping, you have it, with a passion that is informed by the truth of Scripture. So what are some practical things we can do? Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Good. What else? Yes, Veronica. Exactly. Yeah, we need we need each other. Bible says we're family. Yeah. 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 I think a lot of times that's a great one, Paul, because I think a lot of times we forget to ask God to teach us about Himself. Yeah, we don't have. We say, God. I mean, that's why I never open my Bible without praying first, not because I have to. Like I pray for a meal, that's what I do, whatever. No, because I think, who am I to think that I'm going to understand this infinite wisdom without the Spirit of God's help? So, yeah. Anything else? Yeah, Sue. Yeah. There's very few ways better than standing up for our faith, whether it's in principle, or even speaking the gospel to people um, that will really draw us to who God really is and our dependence on him and how good he is. It's, it is amazing. Yeah. Yes? Yes. And doing that in a way that feels appropriate, whatever that is, to us. Yeah, that's so good. Yeah, yeah. Am I surrendering everything, everything to him? But we can't surrender everything if we don't know 
if we're not sure that he does, isn't madly in love with us, right? I'm not going to surrender myself to a God that I think is up there with a stick waiting to hit me when I blow it. No way. But I am going to be willing to surrender everything, my desires, passions, everything, if I know that I am the apple of his eye and that he's jealous for me. That changes everything. Everything changes when it's that. So we're going to move into communion now, and the band is going to come on up. And as many of you know, we've started a new tradition here. We're doing communion every Sunday now. And so, and so what we're doing is we want this to be an opportunity, just a time for you to really be able to spend some time with the Lord. Um, we're, we're, we've taken away some of the formality of it. Once the, the band is going to play an entire song, worship song, we encourage you to worship during that time. Uh, to come on up and just get your own elements. You can take the elements right at the table if you want. You can take them back to your seat and pray and spend some time with God. But this is meant to just be an opportunity to, to worship the Lord. If you, want to, if you want to sit there and just sing the song that they're doing, what, however, okay, this is, this is our time to recognize the sacrifice that Jesus made so that we could understand what it more and more what it's like to have this relationship with this loving, jealous, amazing God. So they're going to play, and however, whenever you feel led, uh, come and get communion.